1: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running
2: conservative talk show.
1: He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion.
2: He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is. And a very Merry Christmas to you. We welcome you into the Tuesday edition of Lifeline for, uh, what is today? The, the 8th? You tend to lose track. The 6th? No, that can't be the 6th. The 10th. <laughs> we didn't. Get, nobody can get the date right around here. All right, it is the 10th. Of December, for some reason I had my mind stuck a couple of days ago thinking about Pearl Harbor. For some reason, well, I have political narrative notwithstanding, reminds you about wars, right? So I, I guess there's a tie in there. Well, in any event, let's uh, let's get down to cases. There's good news tonight. We've got a couple of good stories for you. One coming out of the United States Supreme Court regarding a abortion case. In Kentucky, Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, will join us for an update on that piece of encouraging news. And Brad Dake will drop by, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, to tell us some good news. The Grinch stole Christmas, and Pacific Justice Institute just stole it right back. We'll tell you all about it coming up later on in tonight's program. Talk a bit about a topic that uh, occasionally sort of filters in and out of the news. Here on the West Coast, we don't think much of this unless you're down in the San Joaquin Valley and other areas that produce a tremendous amount of agriculture here in, in California. But certainly areas like the San Francisco Bay region, we, we don't think about agriculture much even though about 35% of all the fruits and vegetables that are consumed across the country come from the state but i tell you in particular many of the midwestern states that are engaged in farming they are the breadbasket that provides all of the wheat and the soy and the corn that we all depend upon well they think about this the china trade wars the impact on farming due to chinese retaliation taking business elsewhere has had a pretty significant multi billion dollar impact on farmers and most definitely hurting family farms the most. And while you would think that they have concerns over things like weather and certainly crop growth and trade issues and certainly farm sales, another topic that the average farmer has to worry about is product or harvest harvesting. And while you would think for all of the mechanization and modernization that we've seen in the United States in the last 100 years, that the one area that would have benefited the most would be agriculture. It, in fact, has benefited the least from modernization. Well, along come our friends in the United States Congress, the House specifically, with something called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. But as my first guest tonight will suggest, there's anything but modern behind this bill, Mark Kerkorian is a National Review contributor, and he is recognized across the country as an expert on immigration issues. He has served as Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies since 1995. Mark, thank you for taking time to be with us. Merry Christmas to you. And and tell us, the title alone might suggest that we're finally going to deal with some of these issues that many medium and small-sized farmers face every day, but as an article that I read that uh, you wrote suggests, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act is anything but modern. Tell us why.
1: The bill, uh, which is likely to be voted on in the House of Representatives tomorrow, Wednesday, gives amnesty to basically all the illegal immigrant farm workers, but Ties them to the land in a kind of indentured situation where they have to work on the, in the fields for a certain number of extra years in order to get a green card. Of course, when they get the green card, then they will leave immediately. This is the experience because the work on farms is lousy work. It really is. I mean, these are hardworking people who are treated like garbage and paid a pittance. Precisely because the farmers always have more illegal aliens behind them to hire, and so this system, this this uh, bill, amnesties the illegals, but indentures them to the land, and then sets up a system where future farm workers who aren't illegal aliens now would have to be would have to work in the fields for ten years, a ten year period of what amounts to indentured servitude. Before they also can get green cards and then leave and go get a job in construction or something else. Um, and that's just a recipe for keeping the way work is done in fresh fruit and vegetable agriculture primitive, which is the way it is now. There was a, I linked to a piece that Breitbart had done, which was kind of interesting. What they did is they, uh, showed, tweets that the United Farm Workers had put up before Thanksgiving of farm workers picking different vegetables. And the point was, you know, if you like your radishes in your salad this Thanksgiving, you know, here's uh, here's a woman who may have picked them, you know, this kind of thing. And they're showing, uh, the, this this one really struck me, it was a woman picking radishes, and amazingly fast and dexterous. I mean, she's there, you know, in the dirt. And just with, it's almost like they speed the film up. I mean, she is just pulling those things, rubber banding them together in bunches. Really remarkable, as fast as any human being could do it. And then this story juxtaposed it with a video of a radish harvesting machine, which in thirty seconds basically harvested more radishes than any person, even someone as quick and skilled as that woman, could do in a whole day. But if you're a farmer, why would you invest in buying a harvesting machine if you've got 17, you know, illegal aliens or even guest workers willing to do the job for peanuts? It just doesn't make sense. And so, what this, what I mean, the long and the short
0: of it is, this bill
1: takes away the incentives for farm operators to modernize the way they do business.
2: And of course, what's uh, what's problematic about this is and it, it's not to suggest that we are um, advocating taking away employment opportunities for people that have uh, limited uh, labor skills. Although, as you suggest, this one radish picker probably does uh, has the higher labor skills than most out there, <coughs> just based on her her uh, her pace but at the end of the day we recognize that the industrialization didn't stop in the 1800s it didn't stop in the 1900s it hasn't stopped in the 2000s it continues to march forward and mechanization is the name of the game and we're seeing robotics coming into um, certainly industrial manufacturing plants across the globe and we're having to recognize that we need to retool rethink different jobs uh, what 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 are the mainstay jobs today will look very different probably 10 15 years from now as they certainly did 20 or 30 years ago. That said, why is it that it seems as if we sort of leave farming stuck in 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 you know the, the medieval ways of 10,000 years ago in this is it your opinion mark that the the lack of effort towards modernization and mechanization is largely because they know they can get the labor for cheap and therefore why why explore other methods but in doing so essentially really engage in well, what do we call it it's almost like indentured servitude isn't it
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no question that one of the big reasons that um, farmers don't have that much incentive to put the money into research and development, trying out different ways of mechanically harvesting and all that, is because uh, they got more people than they know what to do with, or they have traditionally, uh, you know, for labor. I mean, they've got plenty of people to pick from, and so, you know, why rock the boat? If it's working, they're going to stick with it. That's why a lot of these, a lot of this harvesting machinery, which is to say, the high-end research and development and manufacturing, is happening in Europe and Japan, where they don't have as large a supply of uh, foreign farm workers to draw from, and you know that's basically leaving our agriculture behind. Let me just give you one example: out in Fresno and the area around Fresno is where most of the raisins. In uh, the United States, are grown and harvested. You know, they're grapes, and then they've dried and they become raisins. Um, there is a way of harvesting them that is much more productive and uses machinery. Um, basically, instead of the old fashioned way, which is still the way it's done in a lot of places, in Fresno even, where you cut off a bunch of grapes one bunch at a time by hand with a little snipper thing put it on this tray on the ground, you know, let it dry in the sun. Very labor-intensive. Basically the way ancient Greeks did it. I mean, it's the same thing. Instead, in Australia, where they don't have hundreds of thousands of Mexicans willing to sneak across the border and harvest raisin grapes, they developed a way of doing it where you cut the stem of the plant and you let the grapes dry slowly on the vine, And then you have a machine, a brush harvester, harvest them. So it still takes work. It's not like there's no workers, but you don't need nearly as much labor, especially at harvest time. But in Australia, they developed it and use it a lot. In Fresno, it's much less prevalent. There are some places that use it. But really, why would you uh, invest the money in it uh, if you don't have to? And I remember there was a raisin... Great grape farmer, a guy who got into it late in life. In other words, he wasn't like a third-generation guy who'd been doing it. And he set up his vineyards specifically to allow them to be machine-harvested, his raisin uh, grape vineyards. And he used to beg, even testified before Congress a couple times, like, please, please enforce the immigration laws so that my um, arrangement, the way I use labor, I use much less labor, much more machinery, actually can pay and would have a competitive advantage if they had tightened the border. He ended up selling out I think once his kids grew up and didn't do it, but the long run that's the way agriculture has to go. The easy things we've mechanized, things like wheat and corn and soybeans and cotton. Those things weren't mechanized before in the old days. You know, they just hacked that stuff by hand, picking the cotton by hand, cutting the wheat by hand. Well, those things were mechanized. They were relatively easy because, you know, the wheat grains aren't going to get bruised or anything like that. It's harder for fruit and vegetables. That's true. I mean, everybody acknowledges that. But there's a lot of research into it, and there's machinery now that can harvest, uh, you know, radishes, uh, Brussels sprouts, lettuce, tomatoes, you name it. Some things, it's harder, and you probably can't do it. And if, that, if there's really no way, to grow something, let's say strawberries. There's even research into harvesting strawberries mechanically, but as you can imagine, because they're so delicate, um, it may not be economical to harvest those by machine. Maybe you have to do it by hand. Well, if that's the case, isn't it better to buy the stuff from some country where labor is cheap so people can live in their own country and harvest the strawberries and sell them to us Than importing those people to our country so that they can grow the strawberries in our dirt. You know, why why is that better? I'm for trade. I just, you know, think that we shouldn't be setting up a situation where we hold our own agricultural technology back, or not the technology, but hold the development of technology. In our own country, we hold it back because we allow the labor market to be flooded with cheap foreign
2: Well, and moreover, Mark, it sounds as if there's a little bit of manipulation going on here. And, you know, I'll be the first to argue, do I want to pay $10 for a head of lettuce? No. But at the same token, this notion that you come here and in order to receive your green card, you have to essentially tie yourself to the land and promise that you're going to work six, eight, ten years, whatever the number might be, in spite of the fact that You didn't choose this profession, most likely. There's a reason why they call it stoop labor to begin with. And so you're perhaps here with the sole goal in mind of bettering your life, bettering the life of your family. And as soon as you can get out of farm labor and get into something that pays better, That is less dangerous and and easier for you to do. Like any thinking individual, that's what you like to do. But this bill seems to suggest that no, we're not going to allow you to do that. There seems to be some flaws here. Let's talk about it more if we come back after a quick timeout. Mark Kikorian with us today, National Review contributor. He is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. We'll come back with more of our discussion as we work through the so-called Farm Workforce Modernization Act as Lifeline continues. 522 Traffic Now from the KFAX Traffic Center.
1: now back to lifeline with craig roberts
2: one of the items that's problematic about the so-called farm workers farm workforce modernization act is the sense that it seems to repeat some of the mistakes of the 1986 farm and immigration reform act one that legalized 1.1 million immigrants though technically in the farm arena under which they were Uh, granted their amnesty. Only about 400,000 were really, truly individuals who engaged in farm work. Now this notion, Mark Kikorian, that they would come or be here and be granted eventually um, legal residency should they agree to stay engaged in farm work for four years, six years, ten, whatever the case might be, I guess, dependent upon how long they've already been in place in the country. I, is it really realistic to expect people are going to do that?
1: Well, I mean, I think they are going to do it. And, in fact, we're going to have more people than we thought applying for, these, uh, for this amnesty because, like you suggested, um, back in 1986... Uh, President Reagan signed the first big amnesty, illegal immigrant amnesty, in our history, and it was the first time we'd done it, and it seemed like it was worth a try, because it was a kind of deal where we amnestied the illegals who were here in exchange for promises to tighten up an enforcement in the future. Specifically, there was one piece of that amnesty. There were several parts of it, and one of them was for farm workers. So we've actually done a farm worker amnesty before. the majority of people who got that amnesty were not farm workers. it was the most fraud-ridden immigration program in American history. Uh, and it wasn't even just regular people lying about, say, uh, you know saying that uh, they picked watermelons from trees or they dug cherries out of the ground. I mean they had all kinds of outlandish things. they asked people because these people had no idea about farming. they ended up getting green cards, anyway, a lot of them, including a guy named Mahmoud Abu Halima, who was a cabbie from Egypt in New York. He drove drove a cab. He was an illegal alien. Uh, And uh, he got his green card, which he used to go to Afghanistan, train for terrorism, and he led the first World Trade Center attack, which he could not have done had he not benefited from his amnesty. And my point is, there's no way that if we have another amnesty for illegal immigrant farm workers, the way the um, Congress, both Democrats and um, Republicans, have signed on to this, want to ha- vote on tomorrow, Wednesday, there's no way it's not going to be riddled with massive fraud. its I mean, it's just a, a given. And, um, you know, the, the people denying that are just uh, not living in reality.
2: Well, and and sadly, you know, we we continue to demonstrate, even as we saw in the uh, terrorist attack in Pensacola, Florida, and I think it's fair even at this stage to call it that, uh, that we still have not really fully learned the lessons of 2001, even with a change in administration. Many of the mistakes that we've made all along, we're continuing to make. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this vote comes down. And, uh, you know, if you might know quickly uh, put an email into your member of the House of Representatives that will be voting on this tomorrow. Uh, It's called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, and you can get more information about it um, simply by uh, going online. In fact, you can even Google this uh, interesting article that appears at the website of the Center for Immigration Studies um, by Mark Kikorian called Farming Like It's 1699. And, again, you want to let your member of the House know that uh, you don't agree. It's not a good idea. It's got too many mistakes. So far, ironically, H.R. 5038, this particular bill, co-sponsored by 28 Democrats and 25 Republicans, and it's made its way out of the House Judiciary Committee last month without any hearings. Really? Amazing stuff. Mark Korkian, thank you so much for the time and the insights. 5.31 on the clock. Going to get you updated here on some traffic as we swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Undoubtedly one of the most familiar Christmas songs this time of year. One that, by the way, uh, if I have my numbers right, I believe celebrates its 300th anniversary this year, composed in 1719, just a couple of years prior to my birth. any rate. Joy to the World, classic Christmas song, and one that, at least for a 13-year-old Northern California student, had been told verboten, no way, can't do it let find out why. Brad Dacus joins us, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. He, of course, is a constitutional lawyer. And it seems like uh, every time this year, Counselor, we can't miss a story or two about... Some community that won't put up a manger scene because they think it's going to violate separation of church and state regulations or a school that says we have to have a completely sanitized Christmas program. We can talk about Santa Claus and reindeer, just can't talk about the babe in the manger. Tell us about this particular case of 13-year-old Brooklyn and what happened.
3: Yes, Craig, this 13-year-old is a part of a charter school, uh, so it's it's a government school, but uh, a little more supposed to have a little more freedom and leeway in how they they do things. Uh, hopefully for good. In this case, unfortunately, it was not for good. Uh, what happened is she had a project, and part of her project was to uh, to do uh, uh, as part of her, one of her classes was to uh, perform or, or do some kind of community presentation. So she decided that she was going to play this um, on the piano, just not sing it, just play the the notes. Uh, joy to the world. Uh, at a nursing home. Well, the school found out that this is what she was wanting to do for her project and they said you can't do this because Joy to the World is just it's just too Christian it, it's it's as Jesus in, it's about Jesus and um you know people may remember what the words are while you're playing the song and you know that was uh so she was told no you can't absolutely do that. You have to do something that has no religious um aspects to it at all. And uh we were comp- we at Pacific Justice Institute were immediately called by the parents and uh, we got involved in um, definitely um, went with to bat for. It.
2: And the the whole notion of this can't be done. I mean, that there's there's some details in here that that seem to make the school's argument fall apart pretty quickly. First off, if the notion was, well, it's a public school and we have a variety of uh, students and parents of different religious backgrounds, they come to our Christmas presentation and, you know, they're they're kind of expecting a non-sectarian experience so we don't offend the Muslims or the Jews, on and on the list goes. Although the last time I checked, it was still called the Christmas holiday season. That said, some of the details behind this really Demonstrates a very peculiar and particular bias by this school. Tell us more.
3: Yeah, it's it's really uh, pretty pretty sad because I mean, you know, first off, you know, she's um, you know doing performing it off school campus. She's at a nursing home. Number one, number two, she's only playing the music. She's not singing the song. But this, as it turns out, so you're looking at this thing. Wait a minute, they've got some kind of a. Of an attitude problem here, right? Well, it just so happens this same charter school we at Pacific Justice Institute are in the process of suing uh, for on behalf of a piano teacher who was removed after being ordered to remove two classic hymns, "Amazing Grace," uh, and another one uh, from the uh, from her her music program of the book. Literally, she's supposed to tear them out. She has all this other kinds of songs, a different style of songs throughout American history. And they said, no, you can't have these two because these are hymns, and and we just can't have that exposure uh, to kids. And we've filed a lawsuit on behalf of that piano teacher. That may have been a factor in why they decided to go ahead and quickly change positions after receiving our demand letter on behalf of this young girl, uh, who was now able to uh, perform the song and and um, not uh, be censored. But uh, we've we've got a problem with this charter school, and we have Pacific Justice Institute are not going to. Uh, let any, any moss grow under our feet as we deal with these uh, situations one at a time.
2: Frightening thing is that these schools I'm sure, uh, dependent upon their school levels, at some point are teaching children civics, and I would suppose that some of the civics would include an understanding of the foundation of our government and some of the, the key documents related to our government. The Federalist Papers, certainly the Declaration of Independence, and that little thing we call the Constitution. Uh, they teach it, but they don't understand it. Is that part of the case here? <laughs>
3: I, I think part of it is, uh, is just that they, they, they don't, um, either. They, I think they don't I really understand what it means, and part of that's because maybe their own education, whether it's through public schools, public universities, uh, have given us this uh, freedom from religion philosophy versus freedom of religion. You know, Craig, when I went to law school at the University of Texas, one of my own professors, he says, you know, the Constitution's freedom from religion clause, says I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, Doesn't it, isn't it freedom of religion, professor? He looks at me and goes, Oh 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 yes yes that's right yeah it's freedom of religion and i mean that's that's how wide that's that's how far and how deep the this uh, false narrative has become and of course we that's why we have to to get involved in and uh, represent people like this this 13 year old girl uh, who uh, wanted to, to stand up and not be ashamed of of her her face and not be ashamed of what christmas meant to her and what she wanted to share you
2: know the irony is i'm going to have to go out and get a new copy of my a little handbook here, the U.S. Constitution, because the, the one that I have, I've turned the thing upside down and every which way, and I can't find the passage in here that talks about separation of church and state anywhere. That Clearly, I must have gotten a cheap version of this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, it's, it's not in the Constitution. Yeah, it, it's what that's what I thought.
2: That's what I thought.
3: And that's one reason why we prepared a book, uh, Reclaim Your School, that people can download without charge. And for college students, we we even have a booklet uh, they can download called Constitution on Campus to empower them uh, for their rights to live and and share their faith um, in 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 a university setting as well.
2: And for folks that want to get a copy of that or uh, a parents who this time of the year are starting to run into these situations here where a kid wants to write a story about Jesus for, uh, you know, a, a, a English lit class or whatever the case might be, and all of a sudden we have uh, more ignorance being demonstrated, uh, where can folks get more resources and more information?
3: Uh, just go to our website, which is, uh, we'll say, pacificjustice.org, pacificjustice.org. And uh, there they can sign up to get all those resources. They can also sign up to get our Legal Insider Newsletter, which comes out once a week. It's very short, uh, but it's very informative. And also, if people like to support our work, uh, we have a matching gifts program up to $100,000 uh, uh, through January. So if they'd like to participate in that, uh, that's also there as well. We greatly appreciate uh, the support of, uh, of any of your listeners.
2: Absolutely. And again, go directly to uh, the PJI website, simply pji.org. That's Pacific Justice Institute.org, And of course, remember them, too, in your year-end giving. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, the president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. 544, let's get you updated on traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center.
1: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Ever heard the adage, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time? Well, if the elephant is the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, then many of the laws being passed and upheld in a variety of communities and states across the nation is the modern-day equivalent of eating the elephant one bite at a time. Oh, sure, it would be nice to do it all in one fell swoop, but then heartburn, indigestion, just a little bit too much to tackle. But the fact remains we are seeing significant progress, baby steps, but significant steps, in the effort towards saving the, the unborn. And most recently, a decision handed down less than a week ago by the Supreme Court, where they declined to take up a challenge to a recently passed Kentucky ultrasound law that requires, and I think rightfully so, a physician or a qualified technician to perform an ultrasound on any woman who seeks an abortion and show her the screen images. Now, she has rights here, too. She can say no, not interested, don't want to hear the heartbeat, don't want to see it. But at least in the in the truest form of full knowledge of informed consent, the other side likes to use that term a lot, right, that at least women have then all of the information upon which they can make an informed choice or give informed consent to whatever their ultimate decision is, Brian John <coughs> Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And, 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 Brian, I wasn't sure whether or not this one was going to survive, but I am delighted to say that, indeed, that's Kentucky law. Uh, now, I guess, uh, with the courts saying, no, we're not going to touch it, does this go into law effective immediately?
0: Yes. And that's exciting thing, Craig. And really, I think on the, on the deepest level, this is really the message of our movement. The humanity of the child is what's at stake in the message of life. And very often, as you know, we're dismissed, well, that's just your religion. That's just your philosophy. But no, when people recognize, and particularly the mother, when she sees the child, this is an incredible, again, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That is a principle in Scripture. We know that we're made in the image of God. But after a while, that becomes just religious talk in your theology. Seeing is believing. And when we see the child, things change. And so this is a huge victory, and it's something that obviously state by state we have to work for. Here in California, there's still hope, by the way, because that is still the same message. You know, polls show that, oh, Californians identify as pro-choice. But those polls don't tell you the whole fact. If you ask those same people when they approve of abortions, it's the misunderstanding that Roe versus Wade is only for the first trimester. And that that's necessary. And so they're removing the humanity from their mind. When you ask that same group that has said they're pro-choice, well, what about later abortions? And as they go through the trimesters they start to recognize well that's that's a baby big enough to hold in my arms and that's our job our job is not to talk about us or our theology but the objective facts the self-evident truths of that child and even it isn't just the mother when your neighbors and friends when they recognize that's a human baby their support of abortion drops drops dramatically, and in particular, when there's nothing wrong with that child or the mother. And that's the case in California. Children are killed throughout pregnancy in the Medi-Cal funding, in the regulations for Medi-Cal. They will pay for any abortion at any time, at any gestational age, and there's no health risk necessary. They'll pay to kill that kid, no matter how big. When your neighbors know that, they're not pro-choice. They'll say, well, I don't go with that. Well, great. Then you oppose Roe v. Wade. You oppose the abortion industry in California and using your money for that. So this is hugely significant not only for the laws of Kentucky, but really for our movement, because I want to remind listeners that's our message. It's not about us. It's about the humanity of the child and showing that child is our job. Uh, california we're working on what's called the light of day project when the light of day is shown on what's really happening with abortion your neighbors actually agree with you and when you tell scott peterson is in prison right now up on san pablo bay looking out in san pablo bay for two murders now that's the law of the state of california that has him there he killed connor as an unborn child he's serving time for that and he has to look out in san pablo bay from san clinton that's the law of the state of California, but if if his wife was driving to an abortion clinic, she, she could go. She could have killed that baby. No, no, concept, something's wrong. There's something wrong when people see the objective facts that later children are being killed too, and they can visualize and think in their own mind about what's at stake. We win. And that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for that child's life and that the laws will again protect that child.
2: The change, certainly, in the United States Supreme Court, the makeup with these most recent two appointments. And, uh, you know, uh, there's certainly a lot at stake of the election coming up in 2020 and and many distractions taking place leading up to that time. Uh, Certainly, there have been ongoing questions regarding the Health concerns of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how long she will be able to physically remain on the court uh, certainly means that uh, another critical potential appointment here uh, could be handed to this current president. That being the case, um, and as we see the court's decision here in the last week to not pursue a hearing on this particular A law in Kentucky. Does that give you um, reason to be encouraged that some of the strides, some of the advancements that we've seen in recent years in these, as I said earlier, baby steps are ultimately going to take us to some very significant changes in relationship to abortion law in America in the coming five years?
0: Well, Craig, you're exactly right. Literally today, I believe, the reason, the real reason that you're seeing impeachment papers filed today. Really goes back to the election of Donald Trump and everything you just said. Those courts are everything to the progressive mind. They want the courts controlling laws and creating laws. And that's what they did at Roe v. Wade. They don't want states to step up and protect those babies. And right now Roe is pre- preventing that. The overturn of Roe and the appointment of justices. <laughs> I almost blanch at times to be honest when Donald Trump points out how He is changing the courts he has had 180 nearly 180 judicial appointments that's double both george h w bush eight years and barack obama eight years in his three brief years he has put up double the number of both of them this is extraordinary he is changing the courts you mentioned it ruth bader ginsburg again we pray for her we pray for her understanding we pray for her her redemption (laughs) it's christmas time we want to be optimistic we don't war against physical people it's against bad ideas and she has fostered and promoted bad ideas and she may need to be replaced at any moment that's why they're going so quickly that's why they must act against him and they did as you know impeachment wasn't just filed today they started the moment he was elected the entire left is given over to the idea that among other things human beings are disposable in a progressive society and we can talk about that another time but that is the opposite of the american principle america is built on the value of individual lives and that we need a government that will protect the innocent and yet progressives are warring against that and the Roe versus Wade decision is the one singular victory in the last, oh, 50, 60 years. This has been hugely significant for those who want to dramatically alter the nature of America. And it's under direct threat. So that's what this president really poses, is a direct threat to the cultural values that they hold dear. And Roe versus Wade is the, the sumum bonum. It's the highest good that they see. Because it allows human beings to be, to be destroyed and, and dismissed, and that again, that goes against the fiber of America. And that, uh, what this president always says, "Let's make America great again." It is actually the value of each and every life that has made America great. America is is built on that we have been given God-given rights, and every life has been endowed by the Creator with that right to be alive, and the job of government is to protect that life, and this president's acting on it. So it's a huge moment in history that we are standing in right now, right now as they're filing impeachment papers. They're moving forward in ideology death. And even if, if Mrs. Pelosi will call herself Catholic, well, labels aren't the issue. It's the reality of what she's doing. What are the ideas? She's seeking to put into law. That's what this battle's about. And it's very, very real. And when Rose overturned it comes back to California and the several states. That's why I want you to know you can help bring the light of day to your fellow Californians about the real facts about California law. Get them thinking about the baby, not about your theology. It's about the life of this child. If we see the child, we naturally want to protect that child. So that's our job as a movement. And uh, the path is before us, and I'm excited. I'm excited that we're moving forward, but understand why this battle is raging right now.
2: Lots to be thinking about, certainly lots to be praying about in the coming year. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Thanks for that update. More information available on the web at nrlc.org. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you thinking about traffic. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center right now.